0: Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.
1: Good morning, everybody. It is, well, currently it's Wednesday. It's supposed to be almost 70 degrees. The sun is shining. The birds are singing. It's like spring is in the air. And here I am recording a podcast for you. I hope you're doing well. I hope that this finds you wherever you are. And you're with, uh, your spirits are high. That's what I hope. That's what I pray for. Um, So welcome to Awaken. We're going to sing a little today. We're going to study the scriptures a little today. We're going to come to the table together today. And Lord willing, you will be met by the presence of the risen Christ and be given exactly what you need for today. So let's begin by joining our voices or you can just listen also, your choice, Um, but Melody's going to lead us in a few songs and uh, a psalm, a familiar psalm, uh, 23, and then the kid's blessing. So let's do that.
2: be
1: Uh, a couple of announcements before we jump into the teaching, uh, the first of which is the annual meeting is coming up, so I want to just keep that on your radar. That is the third Sunday in May, the 17th, and we will keep you posted as to how we will do that meeting, whether that will be in person or by technology. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, just a reminder, uh, both Mandy and Jenna and Trevor, the uh, and Jane, for that matter, uh, the staff at Awaken—we're uh, still working. We're still uh, working hard and trying to provide opportunities for you all to be engaged and to—and um, so if if you find yourself, uh, we were just talking at staff meeting this morning. In. Uh, as a parent or as a family, if you find yourself in need of some support, just uh, parenting kids in the midst of this, reach out to Mandy. Um, She's like, I'm available, I'm ready, I'm able. So if parents uh, have needs or or just want to talk, feel free to reach out to to her. Uh, Some of you that have been on the Awaken Fireside page, you probably have seen some of the conversations about like, who are the healthcare workers in our community and who are the teachers in our community? Um, If there are, if you have opportunity or time and space and wanna reach out to people in our community and support them and just say, hey, thanks for what you're doing, you frontline workers, um, those that information is not hard to find. And also you could just contact Jenna as well. She's keeping lists of all those folks. And so if that's you, feel free to contact, or if you have needs, if you just need somebody to, uh, to chat with and get through uh, a difficult spot in the day, Our staff is available and ready to walk with you and love on you and care for you in the midst of this. So, um, don't forget about us, friends. We're here to serve and and love you. Um, Let's jump into this teaching. What do you say? We're in the book of Acts. We just started a series last week called Implications. We're asking for those who were present first at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus the Christ. Like, what were the implications of that event? Uh, The word implication, by definition, is the conclusion that can be drawn from something, although it's not explicitly stated. So the things that aren't explicitly stated, what are the conclusions, what are the implications we can draw from the resurrection of Jesus the Christ in 2020, in our world today? Um, What does it mean that God's people is now centered in Jesus and not an ethnic identity called Israel anymore? Um... What are the, uh, what does this resurrection tell us about God's plan and uh, the nature of God's plan that that has been all, all along and where it's headed? Uh, so last week we looked at the first chapter of Acts and the angels who were present at the ascension and asked the question, why are you standing there looking at the sky? And then said that this Jesus would return to you the same way he was taken. We, in I invited you to think about those words as an invitation, an exhortation, and an encouragement all at the same time. And so this morning, we're moving on in Acts chapter four and the story of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, which is a a ruling class, a ruling group of people in Israel. They were brought to the Sanhedrin by the Sadducees, which you will soon hear about in a moment, but they're being brought up on charges. Of bringing unrest, their rabble rousing, their tomfoolery, um, ballyhoo in the temple, and the, the Sadducees are having none of it. So they bring them up on charges and take them to the Sanhedrin. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 4, if you can stand, I'll invite you to do so. Here we go, people. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, they met in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, Jonathan, Alexander, other members of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in case you were wondering where he's from, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, now quoting Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We'll come back to that one. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. They conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in, his, in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us... We cannot help speaking about what you have seen, or what we have seen, and what we have heard. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we study your scriptures and your word, I pray that you would, as you always do, um, reveal yourself, show yourself to us as the resurrected Christ, um, bringing power and healing and transformation to our lives, so that we might participate in the healing and transformation of the world. I pray. and by the power of the Spirit and in the strong name of Jesus and the people of God said together, amen and amen. Uh, A little bit of background, friends. Remember that Acts is essentially the second volume of Luke. Uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and so uh, this same Luke, who was an eyewitness of these events, is writing this story. So there is some pretty serious credibility in terms of the book of Acts. Many people would argue this is one of the most historically accurate or Um, weighty accounts of what happened to this Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been resurrected. He is now ascended. The spirit has been poured out on the new believers in Acts chapter two and the celebration of Pentecost. Uh, Last week, I misspoke a little bit. And I said that Shavuot was the celebration of God's tabernacling uh, presence with the people. Um, In actual fact, that's Sukkot. So uh, in the Jewish calendar, there are a number of festivals. Sukkot is the festival of booths, and that is where the the people would build temporary residences to commemorate the the residence of God and God's presence with them in the wilderness. That uh, happens in the fall, typically September or October. It's connected to the lunar calendar. But Shavuot is the celebration of the giving of the law at Sinai, which happens 50 days after Passover. So if you remember Easter, Passover is happening. Jesus meets with his disciples in the upper room. And then 50 days after Passover, they would have celebrated Shavuot, which is the giving of the law at Sinai. So simultaneously, this is the cool part of the story of of Luke in the book of Acts. The Jews are celebrating Shavuot, the celebration of the giving of the law at Sinai, um, which is called Pentecost in Greek. And that is also when the spirit is given to the church in the book of Acts. So when the the law is given to the Jews at Sinai, that same day, the same celebration is happening as the the spirit is being given to the church at Pentecost. Like you can't make this kind of stuff up, right? Somebody's got it on a calendar up there. Um, but that's what's happening, and, and that's kind of where we are in the Book of Acts. Uh, N. T. Wright has this illustration that the story he tells about one of his friends, who's a bishop, who says that uh, he says uh, he he didn't think that he was having the same effect as the apostles were because everywhere Saint Paul went, a riot broke out, but everywhere I go, they serve tea, um, which is sort of a, a, a funny way of saying that the Book of Acts gets a little rowdy, friends. It's got a lot of controversy and. At multiple occasions, there is some tension, um, especially towards the end, as Paul's traveling around the Mediterranean on these missionary journeys. um, there There is a conflict that's happening between Paul and what Paul is representing in this gospel that he's talking about, and the powers of the day, the people who hold the power in his day. But arguably, the tension gets cranked up right out of the gate with these new believers, and it doesn't end all the way through the book of Acts our passage in in Acts 4 is really the first of those conflicts that we see. Um, But consistently, the apostles and the first followers of Jesus find themselves confronting institutional powers and representatives of those powers. And as we shall see, it's both the institutions of religion and government that get taken to task in this story. So why not do two, uh, you know, instead of just calling into account one institution of power, let's do two, two birds with one stone, friends um and so the question we have to ask ourselves is why like what is it exactly that the apostles and paul uh, later are saying that causes all this conflict you would think that the fact that god has returned alive and well and is sort of offering this rescue plan and this operation through this messiah called jesus like that, that would be good news to the people who are hearing it unless of course you already hold power and this idea of resurrection is galvanizing people and communities in opposition to your power, or in a way that undermines your power. That's not good news. You don't think that's good news, uh, unless, of course, this message implicates you and your institutional power in the very event that Jesus overcomes by his resurrection. That being his, uh, that that event being the crucifixion. So you don't think it's good news if this resurrection implicates you. In the event that got him crucified. Uh, unless, of course, you run the temple and the very center of the Jewish faith uh, is under your control. N.T. Wright says it this way. like You don't think this is good news, particularly if you are in charge of the central institution that administered God's law, God's justice and the life of God's people if you strongly suspected that this new movement, this resurrection message is trying to upstage you and diminish or overrun your power and prestige and take it for itself. Which explains the constant and consistent conflict with power in the book of Acts because the message of the Acts is resurrection. So we know from other places in the Bible and other extra-biblical sources that there was one group of people who loudly and categorically rejected the idea of resurrection, and that is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees didn't. And so uh, the Sadducees are a group of people who are Jewish aristocrats. They are Powerful elite; they wield tremendous power in Israel and in the life of the temple. They oversee the the, the priests, and they're kind of the uh, uh, the executioners of Roman governance in Jerusalem and in Israel. And so, it's no surprise that these people who don't believe in resurrection are upset and threatened by the message of the apostles—that Jesus, the one they handed over to Pilate to be crucified, has been resurrected. And that these men are speaking in the power of and in the authority that comes from this name. So, what are the implications of this resurrection from this story? Uh, What are the implications of this Jesus kingdom that has been inaugurated, that these apostles are running around Jerusalem and the nearby cities talking about? So I want to offer two thoughts this morning as we step into this story And the life of the apostles as they work out the implications of this death and resurrection of the man they know as Jesus. The first of which is this. The power of the resurrection and the kingdom of God will often, if not always, be at odds with the kingdoms and the power structures in this world. So the apostles are running around, they're, they're preaching resurrection, that Jesus, who has been crucified, has been resurrected from the dead, and that there is a new kingdom, a new order that has been inaugurated and begun by his resurrection. And I'm saying that the power of the resurrection and this kingdom of God that they're speaking of, it will often, if not always, be at odds with and in contrast to the kingdoms and power structures of this world. So we have to ask ourselves, like, what does resurrection declare and ensure that is at odds with the power structures and the kingdoms of this world? Well, resurrection declares that God will put everything in the world that is broken and out of place back into order. All of the ways in which injustice and inequity, inequity and lack of flourishing are happening, resurrection stands up and says that this will be no more that these ways of injustice and inequity and lack of flourishing, that God is putting back together and bringing order to disorder and justice to injustice. In some ways, that God will turn the world and its systems upside down and on their heads. This is why the way of Jesus is often called or talked about as the upside down kingdom. I had this buddy in college, his name was Alec. He was my roommate, he was from Kansas City, and he, he loved this band called Peg Top. I'm gonna come back to that. But Peg Top had this one song that he loved, that he turned me onto, that we would imagine this, Micah and Alec in college, like long hair and playing acoustic guitars at open mic coffee shops, we would play the song called The Great Reverse, which was I think a line from C.S. Lewis, but it talked about this upside down kingdom that Jesus invites us into. Now, it just so happens that Pegtop, there was a guy named Matt Patrick who played in the band Pegtop. Matt Patrick happened to record all the albums of Ben Rosenbush and the Brighton, our first worship leader. Matt Patrick played in the band of the Brighton, now plays in a band called the gray Coats." Many of the guys in the Greycoats who are not unfamiliar with Awaken, I mean, it's like a big circle, friends. Everything comes back to Pegtop, I guess. But the point I'm trying to make here is the great reverse. But like, what if you're a Sadducee? What if you're a Sadducee, you don't believe in the resurrection, and you live in a world and you hold power in such a way that the world approves of it and goes along with it and props it up. And resurrection and God turning your world upside down is not something you're terribly interested in. Do you see what I'm saying? What do we know about institutional power and those who hold it? I just watch the news these days, holy buckets. I think it may be a bit of an understatement to say that self-preservation is a pretty strong motivator to those who have power and those who are in danger of losing that power and the lengths to which they will go to preserve and protect the positions and power that they hold. Like this is the brilliance and the scary and awful nature of in reality of a show called like the House of Cards. Like it just puts on display the systems and the power structures and the people who hold power in those systems and the lengths to which they will go to preserve and protect that position and that power. So insert the Sadducees, who oversee the most powerful institution in all of Israel, at the center and the heart of of, of Jewish life, the, the temple. And they hold power in this structure. And the tip of the spear in this conflict comes in verses 11 and 12 of this passage. Peter, in his message to these people who are calling him into account, questions both the religious and the political powers. In verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 118, which was a common reference to Israel in the world. Psalm 118, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Like, if the world sought to reject Israel, and its ways of being in the world as the people of God. And yet, Israel had become the cornerstone of God's redemptive movement. Now, ironically enough, Israel was rejecting the cornerstone, this Messiah, this Messiah named Jesus who had come. And Peter calls it all into question, like Jesus did in his life. He calls in to question the temple, what it stood for, and those who ran it. So religion and those who hold powers positions of power in religion are called out. The stone whom the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter points a finger right at the religious institutions and the people who hold power in it, and he says, you. Imagine David and Nathan in the Old Testament when David calls Nathan the prophet before him, and Nathan tells the story about this terrible man who, who uh, essentially took the, the sheep of the, the poor man and And sacrificed it, and David gets all up in arms, and Peter, or Nathan, turns around and says, that man is you, David. This is that moment. Peter calls into account the religious, and then, in the next verse, he takes on the political and the governmental structures when he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, you might hear that and think, oh, that's an interesting verse, right? Um, I've heard it before, but okay, so what? What? I've mentioned this guy before, but there's a German historian and theologian named Ethelbert Stoffer who wrote a book called "Christ and Caesars." And in it he explores the, the, the connections between Jesus the Christ and the Caesars of Rome. And one of the ways he does that is by studying the inscriptions and the money that was found in the ancient world. And so he found a number of phrases that were inscribed on coins or on statues in the ancient Roman Empire. Let me read a couple of them for you. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. There is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Caesar is Lord. He found that by 6 BC, there were inscriptions around the empire that said, August has been sent to us a savior. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the euangelion. I have friends who have said things like, Micah, why do you have to make Jesus in the gospel so political? Like, um, I read the gospel and Jesus seems to be apolitical. He's like above politics. To which I would answer, what Bible are you reading? What is Peter quoting here? He's quoting an ancient Roman phrase that would have been Roman propaganda, political propaganda that says, "'Caesar is Lord. There is no other one by which you can be saved other than Caesar.'" Peter steals that, co-opts it, and uses it in this new story, this counter-narrative about the gospel, the good news of not Rome and the empire, but Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Jesus's message and the story of the apostles in the first century church is nothing if it isn't political. As the first followers of Jesus are working out the implications of this, this resurrection, what they are finding in very consistent fashion is that this kingdom of Jesus, this way of being that he's calling them to follow and us to follow is at odds with the structures and the principalities and the powers of this world, of the governments and the politics. And in fact, as N.T. Wright says, the idea of resurrection calls it on the carpet. It calls it into account that all of the systems and the people who participate in the systems, who gain power and influence from them, and the gospel, the resurrection, the power of the kingdom of Jesus, lays them bare for what they are, antichrist. They're antithetical to the nature and the way of being that Jesus calls us to, into. Which leads us to another set of questions. What does the power of the resurrection in the kingdom of Jesus even look like then? Like, what is the resurrection? What is the power of the kingdom of God? And what does it look like when it's on display, when it's being lived out? Does it look like our government? Does it look like the leaders whom we've elected? Does it look like our school systems? Does it look like our law enforcement? Now, I'm I'm asking rhetorical questions and and I'm making generalized statements. And maybe there are exceptions, like maybe there are people who show up in our governments and in our school systems and in our law enforcement agencies who are wielding power in consistent with and coherent in in like in congruency or in congruency with the kingdom of God. Maybe that's happening. But this is part of the reasons why I, I implore you, the church, To be changed and healed and transformed and to show up to lead and participate in those institutions, offering an alternate reality and a counter-narrative, one that stands at odds with, at times, the power structures and systems and principalities of the world that we live in. Because one of the implications of the resurrection that we find in the book of Acts, that we find in this story, is that the kingdom of God and the power of the resurrection often stands at odds with the systems and the structures and the way in which power is wielded in our world. It happens in Acts four, and I would say it happens in 2020, which leads me to a second implication. That is that unschooled and ordinary people healed and transformed in the presence of Jesus heal and transform the world. Unschooled and ordinary people who are healed and transformed by the power of Jesus and the kingdom of God heal and transform the world. Friends, as the gospel continues to ripple its way through the ancient world, what we find time and time again is that unschooled and ordinary people from the margins, immigrants, sexual and ethnic minorities, people from the wrong side of the tracks who get caught up in this story, get healed and transformed in the presence of this Jesus. This is, by the way, why we love stories like *The Sandlot* and *The Mighty Ducks*. You know, these storylines where it's like all the wrong kids who 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 didn't like these are these are the this is not the A team, this is not the varsity, the valedictorians. It's the B team. It, it, it's like one of the implications of this new reality of the kingdom of God is that it's. Your pedigree, your wealth, your bloodline, where you grew up, who your parents are, what color your skin is, what gender you are or you identify as or who you are attracted to, what political party you're a part of, who you work for, what clubs you're a part of. None of these things matter. They are no longer on the scorecard in this new system, in this new kingdom. It is only your proximity to and your longevity in the presence of this Jesus that matters like textually, I love the way Luke writes this story. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What has just been said? The two words for unschooled and ordinary in Greek are agramatos and idiotes. (laughs) Can't make it up agramatos means like illiterate or unlearned, and idiotes is similar. Unlearned, uh, illiterate, a man as opposed to the learned or educated, one who is unskilled in any art. This is the common man. These were everyday, run-of-the-mill, the the guy at the end of the bar kinds of people. Again, they were not the A-team. They were not the varsity team. They were not the valedictorians. This was the B-team that didn't make the cut, the factory worker. The lives of the apostles And their time, being transformed by Jesus, became the defense of the gospel and the resurrection. There was nothing the religious authorities could say to refute the life change that was standing before their eyes. I I had drinks a a while back with somebody who has attended Awaken. And he told the story about growing up and how um, his dad was a, a, a pastor and... Their, their life growing up was all about the church and um, sort of growing up in the church world. And he, uh, by the time he got to high school, was asking a lot of questions about the church and uh, this whole thing of Christianity and Jesus. And finally came to the point where he's like, I don't know if I buy any of this. So goes to dad and basically says like, I'm an atheist and I'm not going to Christian college like you want me to. And as he tells the story, his dad looks at him and says, son, you could become an atheist, you could become a Satan worshiper or do something terrible, but nothing will change my love for you as my son and you are always welcome in my home. As he recounted this story, he said, "Like my dad's life and the life of those in this community and the love that they had for each other, which, was, which I so desperately wanted to deny was undeniable like their life was the defense of the gospel maybe you've heard this phrase before apologetics or this word apologetics which is essentially the art of defending the gospel it's like a rhetorical effort to use words to defend the legitimacy of the claims of jesus what's fascinating about the apostles is that it's not their clever rhetoric or their fancy arguments that convinced the powerful and the elite It was the power in which they spoke because they had been with Jesus. Like there's no apologetic necessary. The proof is in the pudding as they say. There's a healed man standing before them and here are two unschooled ordinary men who are speaking with precision and power by simply witnessing to the realities that they had experienced. So here's a challenge or an invitation for us this morning. In a COVID-19 world, what would stand on its own as a defense of the gospel of Jesus? Like, what would not need any fancy argument or tricky rhetoric to make it stand up? Like, what kinds of actions would legitimate and testify or witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus? Like, how could the church live in the world in a way that would shine a light on and not cast dispersion on the name of Jesus? I want to invite you to take some time to think about that this week either as an individual or as a family or maybe as a life group? Like, what, would, what could we do? What, 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 in what ways could we live our lives that would stand up on its own as a defense of the gospel? That would be an apologetic in and of itself, that our very lives would testify to the reality and the power of the resurrection and the kingdom of God alive and well in you and in me. Like what if some of us used our stimulus checks in creative ways driven by values of the kingdom? I was just thinking about this this week as those came in in uh, in our in our bank accounts. I mean, don't get me wrong like some of us we really need these checks to keep things floating, okay I get it. That's what they're for. but some of us like we are we still some of us have lost jobs and so that's like we need these checks, but some of us still have jobs and we can be creative and think creatively and intentionally about how we might use these resources as congruent with the values of the kingdom. Like what if we made a commitment to support our neighborhoods and our, and our neighbors by looking for ways to purposely spend portions of this money at local businesses and service providers in our neighborhoods to sustain the livelihoods of those around us? small businesses and neighbors. Maybe, maybe you could contribute to different charities. Like one of the realities of this whole thing is that a lot of people have lost their ability to support organizations that serve the most under-resourced and vulnerable among us. So could we take some of these resources and invest it in the the nonprofits that are doing the work of serving and loving and caring for the most vulnerable among us, including local churches? Like some of you, you, you don't even attend Awaken, but you're listening to these podcasts because maybe your church doesn't, isn't doing anything or isn't able to. I want to encourage you, like if you attend another church, support your local church. It's, it's a, a reality that COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting communities of color. Like if you do some research on this, you'll find that there's a lack of access to healthcare and insurance for many people of color in our country. Why is that? There, this is one I found this week, which I was just baffled by. Um, there, we're, like Our government and our, our healthcare organizations are sending out information, important information through avenues and means that are white normative means of communication. What do I mean by that? When you shut down community centers and churches and barber shops, these are credible sources of information in many communities of colors. Like information is passed on in different ways based on different cultures and in different communities. So when you shut down community centers and, and churches and barber shops and communities of color, these are some of the most credible sources of information in, a, in, in, a, in, in certain communities. So how do they, So there's a gap between the important information that's going out there and the people who need it the most. Never would have thought of that. What about our food service and delivery workers and factories that are continuing to work, which are more likely to contract coronavirus? Who are those people and why? What about our housing and population density? It's clear that if you live in a more population, a dense populated area, you have a higher likelihood of getting coronavirus. Well, who are the people that live in highly densely high high density populations or high density cities, and why is that the case? These are all questions that I'm just asking, and I don't have answers to them necessarily. But I'm leaning into them because I'm interested in this. Um, I want to encourage you to check out a couple of different um, sources of information. One would be surgofoundation.org. S-U-R-G-O Foundation.org. Uh, This is a company that my wife's uh, workplace works with, and they're doing some amazing research as to how and why COVID is disproportionately affecting communities of color. Um, I would encourage you to follow Dominique Gilliard, David Swanson, Jose Humphreys on Instagram and Twitter, some friends of mine who are covenant pastors who are just doing incredible work as pastors in their communities. Point being, there are ways that we can live and act and spend our resources intentionally that either cause disruption in the status quo around us or even support people who are most vulnerable amidst this crisis that we're in. Let me sort of turn the corner here. Here's the key, and it's always been the key. Our action, any action and missional impulse that we like, send out into the world must increasingly come from transformed places in our lives. Let me say that differently. When action and missional impulse comes from untransformed people and places, it often does more damage than it does good. Some of you are familiar with a book called When Helping Hurts. The subtitle is How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Ourselves, or Yourself. The, The point of this is that when we, as the people of God, aren't doing our own work and being transformed and healed and in the presence of Jesus. We often, we have a desire to, to, to act and to be missional and to live in the world in such a way. But when we do so from an untransformed and unhealed places, we often do more damage than we think. We often do more harm than we do help. Richard Rohr has a whole center built on this idea, the center for action and contemplation. The premise is that people who aren't doing the hard work of contemplation and being healed and transformed who are acting in the world often hurt more than they do help. So our action and our missional effort in the world will have increasing capacity to bring healing and transformation insofar as we are being healed and transformed. Which begs the question. How are we healed and transformed? What is the mechanism or the means by which we, the people of God, become healed, whole, and transformed people? We're back in Acts 4. It seems obvious and almost trite. These men had been with Jesus. Ordinary, unschooled men and women, like you, like me, who are healed and transformed in the presence of the resurrected Jesus are being used by God to heal and transform the world. Friends, one of the implications of the resurrection is that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is a different kind of power. And the kingdom that Jesus came to establish and that his resurrection inaugurates is a different kind of kingdom. And this power and this kingdom will often be at odds with the power structures of this world. And the people who hold positions of power in these structures. So how do you show up in the space between resurrection and the kingdom being consummated and fully realized? That is the question that is before us. The other implication of the resurrection is that ordinary and unschooled people who have been with Jesus and therefore are being healed and transformed are also the people God is using to heal and transform the world around us. So have you been with Jesus? I know that sounds like so evangelical and so old school and so trite, but there is so much depth and wisdom and truth to that. Have you been with Jesus? Are you spending time cultivating a relationship with the resurrected Christ, the spirit of which is present and around you all the time? Are you tuning into that? Let me offer a word of prayer in a time of silence before we move towards the table. God, as we take a few moments of silence to consider what the implications of this resurrection are, would you shine a light on the ways in which we can in, uh, interact with and, and step into this reality that your kingdom and your power are different, that, 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 that they are not uh, wielded in the same way that power and kingdom and empire is done in our, in our world. So would you shine a light on the ways that we can show up and be healed and transformed to to be advocates for a different kind of kingdom and a a counter-narrative, one that's power from the bottom up, that's empowerment, that's never power over. And would you invite us to, 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 like you did with the disciples, come away with me to a quiet place. Invite us, woo us, uh, Remind us that you want to spend time with us, to be near us, to transform and heal us and invite us to participate with you in the healing and transformation of the world. So Holy Spirit, do your work, I pray. So as we move to a time of communion, before we do that, we want to uh, want you to listen to this song. If you've been at Awaken, uh, it's a familiar one to you. But it's a song called Open Up by the Brilliance. And it's a prayer. It's our prayer. It's a longing, a desire that we have that as we experience the love of God in Christ, that we might be opened up to more love and more justice and more beauty. Uh, so let this be your prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion and the Eucharist.
0: Darkness, let me shine light and may your love cause us to.
1: that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you whenever you eat of it do it in remembrance of me and in the same way he took the cup and he blessed it and he said this is my blood shed for you whenever you drink of it do it in remembrance of me friends this is the table not of the church but of the Lord it is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more so come you who have much faith You who have little faith. You who have been here often. You who have not been here for a long time or ever before. You who have tried to follow. And you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, not because the church invites you or because I invite you, but because the risen, resurrected, alive Christ invites you to be known and to be fed here at the table. As you take the bread, receive these words, the body of Christ broken for you, now eat. And as you take the cup, receive these words, the blood of Christ shed for you, now drink. Friends, as we close, I want to offer a little different blessing and benediction than I normally do. And every now and again, I come back to this one just because I love it so much. Um, And I I get the sense that Paul in some ways had a pastoral heart. Um, And this is from the book of Romans, where as he's ending, he says this, and this is my, my prayer and my blessing to you this week. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace, my friends.